As Christians, we inhabit a wonderful world that is filled with countless joys and rewards. But although God and His gifts fill our hearts, there is an unmistakable emptiness that haunts us. An agonized groan emits from every fiber of this fallen planet. A recurring ache overwhelms our souls at times and our bodies continue to degenerate. Death stalks our every move. Sin hovers like a stifling smog over our world. Regardless of the many joys we find in this life, who would want to experience this life forever? Would it encourage you to discover that eternal life is nothing more than this life extended for all eternity? I think in this regard of the parable of a man who died and held his breath to see what his fate would be in the afterlife. You cannot imagine his jubilation to find that his eternal home was one of unlimited earthly pleasures. He was fed luxurious meals by beautiful women on his private yacht in the sunny waters of the Caribbean. Every entertainment, amusement, and earthly luxury he had ever dreamed about was at his full disposal. He had entered, it would seem, the perfect paradise. But as the years passed, the man grew increasingly bored with his world. And slowly that boredom gave way to revulsion. Everything had become thoroughly distasteful. Finally, in utter desperation, he fell at the feet of one of the celestial gatekeepers and pleaded, please, sir, if this is heaven, I beg of you to send me to the other place. The gatekeeper flashed an evil grin at the man and replied with chilling finality, this is the other place. Eternal life in a fallen paradise would be its own hell. Did God not teach us that in Genesis chapter 3? Why did God expel Adam and Eve from the garden after the fall, from paradise? He expelled them, remember, as the passage teaches us, there was this divine deliberation, and God said, He, Adam, must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Having eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam could have eaten from the tree of life and lived forever in a fallen paradise. But God knew that living in an earthly state forever would prove no paradise at all. And so God graciously banned Adam and Eve from the garden. Since Adam's banishment from the tree of life, death has become the grace-wreathed gate through which we escape this earthly existence for a heavenly one. In this life, we are equipped with a body that decays, and for that we can thank God. We are equipped with a temporary body. It decays, it dies, and thus permits our spirits to separate at death for the splendor of eternity.
But God will not finish with us until the curse is entirely ended. In the end, He will raise our dead bodies and transform them so as to equip us for life in the eternal dimension. Eternity will not be a never-ending earthly existence. Our bodies will not be merely reconstituted. There awaits for the believer a complete bodily transformation that will fit us for an environment that is out of this world. This point is the next installment in our study of Paul's defense of the doctrine of bodily resurrection found here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is kind of thick stuff that we're working our way through here. It's careful reasoning. It's philosophical in its orientation. But this is the foundation of our hope. I find no hope in this life going on forever with all of its joys. But there is great hope in the idea of a different world and a body made new and fitted for that different world. Let's think contextually here. To this point in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has offered a powerful apologetic in support of the resurrection of the body. Remember verse 12, there were some of them, the Corinthians, who said there is no resurrection of the body. But Paul argues from that point that united to Christ by faith in the saving gospel, Christ's resurrection will become our resurrection. Verse 21, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. All who belong to Christ will be made alive in Him. As Christ's body rose from the grave, so our bodies will rise when Christ returns. Verse 23, but each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. In the light of this resurrection hope, Paul explains that he was willing and able to sacrifice his body for the cause of Christ. This body is temporary. This body is decaying. I will give this body to the cause of Christ. It does not matter. Come whatever. If it's death itself, I'll give my body to the cause of Christ because I know that to die is gain. That's his burden there in verses 30 through 32 in particular. And then having established that the resurrection is a coming reality, Paul now turns to the issue of manner. How is this going to happen? The resurrection must happen. He's argued for that logically throughout. But how can this be? And this seems to be one of the underlying objections that those who denied the resurrection were putting forward. Verse 35, But someone may say, it comes across perhaps a little stronger in the, in the Greek language, but you're going to say, some are going to object, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? This is the objection that he addresses now. What Paul says in verses 36 and following indicates that these who have rejected the resurrection did so in part because they thought Paul was teaching a mere reanimation of the body. Why go on in this kind of existence forever? Maybe free of sin, living for eternity. But why simply reconstitute this body exactly as it is? Paul turns now to explain that his critics are wrong about this matter. But as he dispels their false notions, he demonstrates for us the true nature of the resurrection body. 
The fact of the resurrection he has established. Now he explains how this works. And he does so first by simple illustration. I think of Jesus with his parables. Look at the lilies of the field. And many of his other parables, Jesus looked into this creation and he saw there the hand of God at every turn. And so Paul follows that same pattern here. He draws from real life, from physical life, and he says, do you not see it? The doctrine of the resurrection is everywhere. In fact, Corinthians, you hold it in your hand. Verse 36, how foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Think about it, Paul says. You hold the answer in your very hand every time you sow seed in the ground and cover it with earth. The seed you sow is dead when you bury it, right? It's not alive, it's not growing. Seed is harvested off of plants, it's dried. The seed dies, <coughs> it is then planted, and then it comes to life in a new plant. Isn't this a wonder? I mean, it's a wonder we've become used to. Maybe not all of us in this kind of suburban setting. I think some of our kids think that carrots are made in the back of the grocery store somewhere. But we see this phenomena. We, we put a seed in the earth. It grows into a different plant. You hold the answer in your own hand, Paul says. You know from your everyday experience that life can spring from death. That a living thing that has died can generate a living form from itself. Verse 37, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of weed or something else. What is he saying there? The body that will be. That means the whole plant. If you want to raise some sweet corn in a garden, you don't take a big stalk of corn with full ears, dig this massive hole, and drop that whole thing down into the ground. In fact, you won't come up with anything there. The kernels will rot, there will be no seed, and nothing will grow out of that. But what you do is you dig a row in the soil and you drop down the kernels of dead seed, the corn, and you cover it over and with water and time there will come up corn stalks. You understand this, he says to the Corinthians, verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has determined. What is it? Probably the plant that grows. And to each kind of seed he gives its own body. God has creatively designed every plant with a peculiar shape and every seed with a peculiar shape and specific transformational end in view. There is the genetic code that will produce this plant. When you plant carrot seeds, you don't come out one day and say, I can't believe this rotten store, I got beans again. If they're really carrot seeds, they're always going to produce carrots. If they're bean seeds, they're going to produce beans every time because that is how God has designed it. Remember the creation account, Genesis 1 verse 11. God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. Whatever the seed that is planted, that is what will come up. You see this, Paul says. There's this definite continuity, a direct connection between every seed and the plant into which it transforms. What's the implication? This is the, this is an illustration of the resurrection body. Now, with that in mind, he goes now to a second 
illustration referring to bodies. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. Let's follow his thinking here. He springboards off of the word body, offering a second illustration. Picturing here the fact that there are different adaptations for varying types of physical bodies. Man is built to rule the earth. Animals are formed to walk on the ground. Birds to fly in the skies. Fish to swim in the waters. God has created, obviously, various fleshly bodies to function in different ways. Now, you see this all around you, Paul says. It's an illustration of the resurrection. The resurrection body is different than the earthly body. As different as the body of a fish differs from that of a bird. Not only this, but we also see in our physical universe that bodies can differ in degrees of splendor. Verse 40. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. Let's take that verse again, verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. Apparently by earthly bodies he's referring to verse 39. Uh, Man and animals and fish and birds. That's earthly bodies. But there are also bodies in the heavens. Using the word body in a little different way, he says look to the skies. There in the skies, there are bodies, heavenly bodies, that give light. God has made some bodies to shine. There are other bodies that don't. So, verse 41, the sun has one kind of splendor, and the moon another, and the stars another, and the stars differ from star and splendor. There's different kinds of bodies. Some are glorious, some are not. And those that are glorious, there are different types of glory between them. As you gaze into the night sky, you can see some starry bodies out, some starry bodies outshine others. The full moon outshines the stars. The sun outshines them all. Obviously, different bodies have degrees of splendor. Now, with these physical illustrations in mind, Paul makes his declaration. He starts with illustration and moves now to declaration. Having said all that, verse 42 is the heart of the matter. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Let's think on that for just a moment. Back at verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. So what? So as the seed that goes into the ground and transforms into a different plant, so it will be with the resurrection of the body. As there is a body for earth, so there will be a body for heaven. As there are differences in splendor here in this earth, so there will be in eternity. The resurrected body will be transformed from a dead corpse into something far more glorious. Verse 42, we notice there, the body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable, or I would prefer the translation corrupt. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. That is, it is free of sin's decay. The resurrection body will generate from our corpse, but it will be imperishable, non-corrupt. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. That seems to draw us back to verse 40, that there are varying degrees of glory. The earthly body is not glorious. The heavenly body will be. 
It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, it's very important here that we connect the right idea to this thing. If you follow me here, the natural body, what does he mean? I don't think anybody's got any question. That's our physical body now. What does he mean by spiritual body? Does he mean kind of a Casper the Friendly Ghost thing, this sort of not really there kind of body? Is that what he's saying? I don't, I don't think he's talking here about a body constructed of spirit, so that it's not really there. But what he's talking about here with spiritual body is a heavenly body, a body that is fitted for eternal life in the presence of God. So the meaning is not that the spiritual body is composed of non-corporal spirit, but that the body will be transformed to equip us for life in the next world. Our bodies are fitted to life in this earth by being, that, by, uh, by being subject to decay, permitting us release in death into the next world. But when our bodies are resurrected, they will be transformed to fit us for eternity in heaven. Grudem writes of our body, it is sown a natural body subject to the characteristics of this age and governed by its own sinful will. But it is raised a spiritual body completely subject to the will of the Holy Spirit and responsive to the Holy Spirit's guidance. So it is, ra- it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Notice verse 44. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. This is the truth that we must grasp. In this life, we are equipped with a natural body. In the next life, our bodies will be equipped for existence in God's presence. That is the driving point that Paul makes here in this section. So he has illustrated the point from seed and earthly bodies and heavenly bodies. He has declared the nature of the resurrection body to be something wholly different than our earthly body, yet connected to it. He now offers a demonstration of these truths. So we've gone from illustration to declaration, now demonstration. That is, biblically speaking, how does Paul support this view? Obviously, he has revelation from God, but he goes further than that and says this is already found in the Old Testament text. Verse 45, So it is written... What is he doing there? What I have said is grounded in Scripture. It is written. It already stands written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The first man, Adam, became a living being. Paul draws here from Genesis 2-7, which reads, God breathed life into Adam's body, which was fashioned from the dust of the earth. By contrast, the last Adam will become a life-giving spirit. So here again, we come back to the contrast between Adam and Christ. The last Adam, last in the eschatological sense, that takes us back to verses 27 and 28. Remember what we read there? It says that everything is put under Christ's feet. It's clear that it does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, though, when the Son himself will be made... Then the Son himself will be subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. This complete defeat of death, this complete defeat of every enemy of God, this is the last Adam. This is the sense in which we see uh, or, or we understand verse 45, this last Adam who brings all things to victory and, and submission to God. This last Adam is a life-giving spirit. So the first Adam was given life from God. The last Adam will be a life giver. 
As Adam is the source of our earthly bodies, so Christ is the source of our resurrection bodies. United to Christ, his resurrection becomes ours. Verse 46, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The Greek reads, not first the spiritual, but the natural, afterward the spiritual. So we live the course of our lives in the natural body. In a second stage, we receive our resurrected body. It's possible that some of the Corinthians thought they were already experiencing the spiritual state Paul describes. No, you're not there yet. You will die. You will shed the natural body, but after that will come the spiritual body. So, verse 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth. Who's the first man? That's Adam. He was of the dust of the earth. The second man was from heaven. And you notice there that the word was is really not found. In fact, it's not found in anywhere in the verse. It's really tough for us to create a sentence in English without a verb. But that really is the case of the original text. Verse 47 reads, The first man out of the earth dusty, the second man out of heaven. And the earthly man, such also the earthly ones, and such the heavenly man, such also the earthly ones. There's no verb in verses 47 and 48. So what are we to make of this? Let me just read it in our text here. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Let me try to simplify all of this to say. Let's ask this question. Does Paul introduce here, out of nowhere, a discussion of the pre-incarnate Christ? That really doesn't fit what he's saying, to all of a sudden begin to talk about Christ before the Incarnation. I think what he's talking about, understanding that there are no verbs, that all the verbs are supplied in our Greek text, I think what he's really saying here is Christ is spiritual body. Adam, earthly body. From him you receive your earthly body. Christ, spiritual body. From him you will receive your spiritual body someday. Verse 46 would, it would actually conflict with verse 46 if there was a discussion here of the pre-incarnate Christ. Verse 46 says the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. So he's trying to stress, first comes the natural body, then in a second stage comes the spiritual body. Therefore, I think he's saying here by Jesus' spiritual body that he is from heaven, not that he is from heaven in origin, but that he is from heaven now in existence. Now he is out of heaven. Now he has a glorified body. And because he has a glorified body, someday you will. Those who enter heaven will receive the spiritual resurrection body that Christ now has. Adam is the source of the body you now have that is decaying and will die. Christ is the source of the resurrection body that you will receive as a believer in Christ and united to him. And so verse, this, is, this fits then perfectly with how verse 49 concludes the section. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we in the future bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Someday our earthly bodies will be resurrected to bear throughout eternity the likeness of the resurrected Christ. How is this going to happen? You're united with Christ. And just as he has a resurrection body, so will you. This is the doctrine. 
This is the truth. I, I mentioned this is, a, this is a little bit tough to plow our way through all of this reasoning. But let's get it in our minds succinctly. The corpses of those who die united to Christ, that is the corpses of those who are saved, will be resurrected to bear the likeness of the resurrected Christ. The proof that we have Adam's body is that it dies. Once we shed this body, we will have the body that Christ has. It will be our body, but it will be wholly different. It will be transformed. Radically transformed to equip us, not for this life as we know it now, but for a new life with Christ. So the resurrection body will not be a mere reconstitution of the body that we now have. It will be transformed as a seed is transformed into a flower. And it will bear a greater degree of glory as the sun outshines a distant star. That's bedrock truth. And we as Christians have gotten used to that truth. We've heard it many times. We accept that as true doctrine, and it is. But let me remind you that it is a truth some in Corinth could not accept. In light of their cultural teaching, perhaps in light of some of their theological twist, theologically twisted thinking about their spiritual state, they had left off the doctrine of the resurrection. And you know what? There are people today, there are churches that are much more sizable than ours that have taken this doctrine of the resurrection and have dropped it in a wastebasket. I think of one liberal theologian who has influenced many of the mainline liberal churches of our nation today, Rudolf Boltmann. He tried to argue around this crass idea of our bodies rising from the dead. I mean, think of it. There are people whose ashes are thrown into the ocean. There are people who, in fact, become part of other bodies. This is just ridiculous, said Boltmann. We must work around this, and I think I've found a way to work around it, and that is Paul's use of the word body. We've read the word body over and over again. It's the Greek word soma, and Boltmann said, I've got this figured out. When Paul talks about soma, body, he does not speak, as Boltmann put it, that man, he says, man does not have a soma, he is soma. He does not have a body, he is body. He is man. That's all that it means. The problem was when Boltmann came to this passage, he found his view so out of sync with this text that his conclusion was Paul was conflicting with his own theology here in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me suggest it wasn't Paul who was being inconsistent. But many have taken the same idea and have discarded the idea that our bodies will be resurrected because we can't figure out how that'll work. Well, if, nobody, if somebody had never seen a seed before and you said to them, I'm going to take this little seed, this corn seed, this little kernel, you can feel it, it's hard, it's dead, and let's smash one up with a hammer and you see it's just dust. There's nothing there. I'm going to take another kernel here and I'm going to put it in the ground and it is going to become a six foot four inch plant that will produce food 
that you can eat. If somebody had never seen a seed before, you can very well imagine them saying, you are crazy. There is no way. I've read about things like that in fairy tales, but this is reality, friend. We put the seed in the ground, and what comes up is fascinating and beyond our imagination. God says to us in his word, don't worry about those who can't figure it out. Believe me. Your body will rise again. It will live again. As Christ was raised with a body adapted to his heavenly environment, so we will receive a similar body. As our bodies decay and near death, we can take hope that someday they will be resurrected. As a seed is planted and dies, so our bodies will decay and will die. But there's a hope for the future. We need to rest in that hope. And let me take you a little bit further. That's the belief in it. That's the doctrine of it. Let's look at a few more passages just in a few minutes here. On that point, let's go back to verse 23, first of all. Verse 23. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's our future hope. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 13 and the teaching of Christ. We see what Paul is saying about this future hope of the resurrection of the body. Let's note now the teaching of Jesus. Matthew 13 and verse 40. Teaching of the end of the age, when Jesus will bring to complete submission all that is in rebellion against God, when he will bring ultimately the death of death. Speaking of this latter time, Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 40, As the weeds are pulled out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. As Jesus defeats that last enemy death, we read in the prophetic work of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. Turn to Daniel chapter 12. (coughs) Speaking of the end times, God reveals... To Daniel the prophet, Daniel 12, verse 1, At that time Michael the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then, but at that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. They sleep in the dust of the earth is obviously the Adamic body, 
the natural body. They are dead in the earth, but they will come to life. They will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. This is the death of death. This is the place where Christ subdues the enemy of death and all bodies and spirits are brought together again. Verse 3, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There will be a resurrection of the body and a shining light that emits from those glorious bodies fitted for this new world. Back to the teachings of Jesus, Matthew chapter 17 and verses 1 and 2. Matthew 17. Experience of Christ here and the disciples. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Matthew 17, 2. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. There a transfiguration. There a prophecy of the coming glory of Christ shining in its resurrection form. Keep that in mind. This prophetic demonstration of Christ's glory and turn to one last passage, Philippians 3 and verse 20. What I'm seeking to demonstrate here is the prophetic word that there will be a resurrection of the dead and those who are Christ, those who are the righteous, will shine like the sun, will shine with great glory. Jesus in his transfiguration shows us that body for a brief period of time and writes the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 and verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. That clinches the whole thing right there. Our citizenship is not here in this earthly world with this body that decays and falls apart and is nothing more than to be shed, allowing us into the presence of God. Our citizenship is there. Our citizenship is in our future. Let's notice the next phrase. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Notice there in verse 21, the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control. Do you see the connection with 1 Corinthians 15? This Christ who is working to defeat death, who will bring everything under control and hand the kingdom over to the Father, this Christ... will be the one into whose likeness we are transformed with glorious bodies. We will be fitted with a glorious body that equips us for eternal life in the presence of God. No more degeneration. No more decay, discomfort, disease, dismemberment, or deformity. 
with transformed bodies, Christ's people will taste and they will smell and feel and see and hear with spiritual powers that are unfathomable to us today. And so we can say in victory over death, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death is only the grace-wreathed portal into this glorious future. We have no fear of this death. For there awaits for us in the future a reunion with body, a body and spirit into a glorious existence. If we know Christ as Savior, then this is the clincher, Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our future is there. Therefore, our focus should be there. This is the glorious future to which Christ has called us. How foolish for us to fear death. But how equally foolish for us to live for this life as if this is the end. This is our future. Live in light of it, Christian. That bedrock truth of the resurrection is the foundation on which you can stand to live life in faith, in hope that that is the reality of the coming age. When we lose sight of that hope, we begin to live this life as if this is the end. And we begin to approximate the man who thought he had gone to heaven and realized that everything that he loved, he now hated. Because it's very possible in this fallen world to get everything you want and to find that it does nothing but dissatisfy in the end. We are not living for this world. And what a foolish response on our part to order our lives and invest our lives as if this is it. Our bodies are just a shell that we will put off. But they're not a shell that we will discard. They're a, they're a seed that will be transformed into the glorious likeness of Christ. This is our hope. If you've not entered that hope, if you have not come to a place where you know that you have been united with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, let me say to you that there is a gospel of hope, there's a good news a message of good news that says that you can come and have your sins forgiven because of the work that Jesus Christ did in your place to wash away your sins and coming in faith, embracing that message. You can leave your sin aside and therefore know that there is a resurrection in your future. All will be resurrected but there will be some who are fitted with bodies that are meant to live forever, separated from Christ in hell. And there will be bodies that are fitted with glory to live forever in the presence of our glorified Christ. We would invite you to embrace that faith and to follow Jesus Christ as your Savior, that that future may be yours.
Let's bow for prayer as we respond. Our Father, we don't know how to respond. When we think of what lies before us, we are awed. And we are, I know that I am shaken awake to keep this world in perspective, to not worship at the throne of its idols, to not invest merely in the joys and the pleasures here, of which there are certainly many and are many that are legitimate. God, may we always realize who we are, that our citizenship is in heaven. May we always realize this is not our home and this is not our future. I pray, God, in the face of death, that we will all know the victory over death, that it is simply a grace-wreathed portal through which we will walk into this glorious eternity. God, move us as your people to think this way and to not slide off of our plate this doctrine of the resurrection as some truth that we have already considered and already know. But I pray, God, that we will realize we don't know this truth. We don't know it until it transforms the way that we live. I pray, God, through this study today that you will heighten our awareness of eternity. Increase our hope and our faith in it. and May we live accordingly. For any that know you not as Savior, I plead, dear God, that you will rescue them from the blindness of sin and bring them to this hope and eternal reward. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.